We live in a time in history when many Christians are asking the question, what is the church's relationship to the state? What is my responsibility to government edicts or government mandates or laws that officials might seek to pass, which are contrary to biblical values and virtues? We have a radical agenda, which has been invading our schools, primarily as a result of the efforts of what is known as the LGBTQ community, which, by the way, isn't a community at all, just a collection of people from various walks of life living aberrant lives. But there are many activists with with, uh, agendas for our uh, students, our our educational systems. Uh, We just went through a lockdown in the spring where our churches were closed and public worship was suspended. And these kinds of behaviors, together with Bill C-6, which is currently being discussed in the House of Commons, uh, Bill C-6, if you're not familiar with it, is a red herring bill. It's seeking to ban conversion therapy under the false notion that people are receiving electroshock therapy in our country, which is a lie. It doesn't happen. There's zero incidents of that happening in recent decades, but this is another agenda that's being presented by our opponents and which is being endorsed by our state, which will be used to muzzle the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and declarations of Christian morality. One of the key texts that Christians have been discussing lately is Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 reads as follows, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, he can punish you for your transgressions. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. If you survey the New Testament, you'll find that this notion of being subjects to authority, by the way, the word there is not submission, it's subjects to authority, is also found in passages like Titus chapter 3, verse 1, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. And it's interesting that passages like this in earlier times were discussed sort of in a theoretical way. Oh, that's interesting. What does this passage say about the Christian's relationship to the state or governing authorities? But recent events have brought this passage to the forefront and it's being talked about in churches all over the place. You could jump online and Google Romans 13 and you're going to probably have 100 articles from 100 different pastors and theologians addressing this issue of what should our response be given the current state of global affairs to government officials and authorities. And many will say, hey, carte blanche, you need to obey what the government says, you need to obey. And others will say, well, I think there's more of a nuanced approach we have to take to this question. So it's used to validate obedience across the board. It is a 
passage that has both raises both theological questions about the nature of the church, the nature of government, and it also raises ethical questions about how we should act, how we should respond, what we should say, what we're allowed to say, what we should do, what we're not allowed to do. So it's both a theological conversation that we have in front of us and also also an ethical conversation. So let's talk about this. And let's summarize our interest in this subject by presenting the following question. What are the boundaries and principles that govern a Christian's response or a Christian's submission to government? What are the boundaries and what are the principles that govern a Christian's response or submission to government? Does this passage mean that in all and every area of life, I must do what the magistrate asks me to do? Or could we potentially be misinterpreting the text to apply it in that way? Now, regardless of how this text is applied with regard to the question that I've posed, one thing that I think all Christians who have studied this passage, as well as the other passages I've mentioned, Titus 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, would agree on is that this passage is, in general, a call to having a posture of humility towards authority. In our church, we're not afraid of saying to children, you should honor and respect the authority of your parents. We're not afraid of saying to married women, you should honor and respect the authority of your husband. We're not afraid to say to churches, you should honor and respect the authority of pastors and elders in your church. Nor are we afraid to say to conscientious Christians who happen to be Canadians, you should honor and respect the governing authorities that God has placed over us. This is a call to a posture of humility and a attitude of submission to authority because as the text reminds us, no authority exists apart from God. So we need to ask ourselves, are we humble people? Now, at the same time, the word of God presents us with ample examples of people who are in positions of authority that abuse it and misuse it. So way back under the old covenant, when the people of Israel were begging God for a king, if you're familiar with biblical history, they had a series of judges, which were a series of sort of ad hoc quasi leaders that just sort of rose up. They weren't elected. They didn't carry an official office. They just sort of rose up and naturally led the people of God through various circumstances. The people didn't want that. They wanted a king. They looked at the nations around them and said, hey, they they have a king and they have a king and they have a king. We want a king. And God said, okay, I'll give you a king. There's nothing innately evil about having a king. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 22, he warned them that there's going to be some problems associated with having a king. Don't be surprised when the king overtaxes you. Don't be surprised when the king maybe overuses you in his military exploits. Don't be surprised when in an attempt to build his harem in order to build allegiances and to secure his power, if the king starts to take a lot of your daughters unto him in marriage, don't be surprised. So while the Bible advocates authority, it doesn't present authority as God. There's an acknowledgement in scripture that parents fail Husbands fail, pastors fail, and governments fail. 
looking at this passage, there's really not, there's really no metaphors in it. There's no difficult wording. It's really not challenging to exegete. It's not challenging to interpret. In fact, I would say it's easy to interpret. But it is harder to apply because other passages of the scripture need to be brought into play to help us to understand the fuller picture. Now, before I take you uh, into the text and sort of exposit it with you, I want to just identify some potential attitudes that we might have that we need to bring from the back of our mind to the front of our mind when it comes to our posture towards authority. And maybe some of these are true of some of you, or maybe we're all beyond this. I don't know. But just to be aware, there's, there's various kinds of people when it comes to their understanding of their relationship with government. First of all, there's the rebel. The rebel is a person that hates authority in general. They hate the government on the best of days. The government could be making all kinds of great decisions, and they're just anti-authoritarian. They don't submit to people. They're hyper-independent. They're not pastorable. Sometimes people come to our church. It doesn't take long to figure out people that are pastorable and people that aren't. Some people aren't pastorable. They come for the relationships. They come for the message. They have a general benefit. They're not going to submit to authority. They're an authority unto themselves. There's many citizens in our world, and the current affairs state of our world has given venues and opportunities for some people that are just, they're just rebellious. They want to protest not because they're principled people. They want to resist not because they want to stand for civil, civil liberties or God's natural law. They just don't like authority. If that's you, you need to do some business with the Lord because that's not a Christian posture. Then there's the conspiracist. The conspiracist probably spends a little too much time on the internet and has this notion that you know, all rulers of the world are conspiring together to destroy the church. There's these think tanks behind the scenes that all the global leaders are part of. There's no real evidence for that. There's never been a true leak. No one's ever come out and said, hey, here's the proof of it. But it must exist because look at all the things that are taking place in our world. These people are difficult to reason with because they're usually ignorant or naive or a combination of both. And then there's the peacemaker. The peacemaker's just like, why don't we just all get along? They don't want to deal with the substantive issues. They don't want to think about strategy. They don't want to actually familiarize themselves with law or God's word or think through the issues. Just like, why don't we just all get along? Well-intentioned, but not exactly helpful in providing us with a solution for how to move forward. And then there's think the place that many of us find ourselves in, and that's the confused. It's like, I have no idea what to think about this. You know, the daily data dumps are coming at me left, right, and center. Every time I talk to someone, they have a different opinion. There's a different source, a different article, a different idea that's being presented to me. And I'm just kind of confused. I don't even know what to do or what to say. Now, all of these things have created so much brokenness in the church of Jesus Christ. You already know this. Pastors are at odds with pastors and churches are at odds with churches and there's been division in our churches across the country, around the world. Sadly, this is one of the greatest tragedies that there's been so much division among God's people. Now, some division is necessary to purify the church. During great persecution or difficulty or challenges, 
the wheat is often separated from the chaff. It's easy to be a Christian if you don't have to think through the issues, if you don't have to sacrifice anything, if you don't have to be challenged. This is why many people gravitate to just neutral churches. They don't raise any controversy. They never challenge your thinking. It's just kind of a general Christian message, a pat on the back and a shake of a hand and you're out the door. And then you come again next week and it just kind of is a very neutral sort of existence. But the word of God, unfortunately, forces us to think deeply about some challenging issues. And so when it comes to Romans 13, we need to ask ourselves, what does this teaching mean? Practically, what does it mean? How am I supposed to respond if I'm told to fall in and obey? Let me present to you several biblical considerations. And here's the first one. Submission to government is not an absolute. Submission to government is not an absolute. Now the text says, let every person, so that's every person, be subject to governing authorities. To be subject means that you acknowledge that you have a role in relationship to someone else's role. You are subject to them. The word here is actually not submission. It doesn't mean carte blanche and everything you need to submit, but you need to understand that some people are in a position of authority and some people are subjects to those that are in positions of authority. Now, one might read this and say, well, that's the end of the story then. Every person in every way, regardless of the circumstances, must do exactly what the king or the prime minister or the premier or the president or the supreme leader tells you to do. The problem with that is that's not evidenced in scripture. So get on over to Acts chapter 5 and we'll look at verses 28 through 30. Here, the apostolic leaders had been preaching the word of God. And those in positions of authority had said, stop it. You're not allowed to do that. Well, if Romans 13 means do what, do what they tell you, regardless of the circumstances, then they were violating God's word, were they not? But listen to this fascinating exchange. The leaders say to the apostles, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. This is an example of civil disobedience with a theological reason behind it. They were being forbidden from preaching the gospel. They said, too bad, we're going to do it anyway. The apostles understood that Christian ministry takes precedence over civil law. The text says we must obey God rather than man. So if there's ever a conflict between God's word and man's word, God's word always wins. And I appreciate the way that Dr. Boot framed this up and has done so previously, which I mentioned at the beginning of my message, where he reminded us that when man forbids what God commands 
or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is actually your Christian duty. God's rulership always trumps man's rulership. If you're married, guys, you're the spiritual head. But if you transgress God's law, your wife doesn't have to listen to you. Young people, if your parents ask you to do something that's contrary to God's law, you don't have to listen to them. If I ask you to do something that's contrary to God's law, you don't have to listen to me. I mean, imagine if I said, hey, the Bible says, uh, respect your leaders, honor those that serve you, give double honor to those that preach and teach the word of God to you. So I noticed somebody came in with kind of a nice vehicle out there today. I'd like it. Bring me the car keys. Put them on the stage. I'm a little short of money this week. I want you to all come up, empty your wallets onto the stage. I'm your pastor. You got to do what I tell you to do. Bring it up, put it on the stage. This would be violating my authority, abusing my authority. I have authority, but there are limits. There are boundaries. Every person in a position of authority has limits and boundaries to their position of authority, except for God. God's word always trumps man's. So we live at a point in history where we're increasingly noticing a reduction in free speech and an acceptance of censorship. Have you noticed that? So back in April-ish, can't remember the exact date, I taught a four-part course to the church through Facebook live streaming during the lockdown called Christian Responses to a Global Pandemic. I taught for eight hours, a lot of teaching, eight hours of talking up here by myself. I had like two people here helping me record. I taught for eight hours, not once until the, in, in the first three weeks, not till the final hour, did I ever let the word pandemic come out of my mouth. I never used the word coronavirus. I never used the word COVID. I talked about the issue, the circumstances. I alluded to it. Never use the words. Why? Because at that time, Facebook had their little bots or algorithms or however that works. Excuse my naivety. And if they'd find a recording that used that, those words, they'd, they were shutting them down. Now, the logic was, well, we don't want people spewing falsehoods. Well, folks, if you don't let a fool speak, You'll never have an opportunity to hear from a wise man. This is the basis of free speech. Free, the, the basis of free speech is we want fools to speak so that we know what they think so that we can confront them. So if I'm a fool and I'm saying things that aren't true, it would be in your best interest to let me say it so that you know I'm a fool and you can confront me with it. Western civilization has understood this for centuries. But now we have this notion that we got to stop people from saying anything. And who determines what's acceptable or not acceptable? Governing authorities, the experts, the professionals, the paid technocrats. Now this might be mildly disturbing on Twitter, but it should be majorly disturbing when it comes to Christian witness and proclamation. 
Because if this notion of censorship takes hold and becomes the popular understanding of what's acceptable and unacceptable in the West, think for a moment, how long is it going to be before more laws come out and more pressures put on to try to muzzle Christian preachers of the gospel? And if that happens, do we say, well, people voted on it. I guess I got to obey. The premier said so, so I guess I got to go with it. No, we disobey. We preach the full counsel of God's word. We don't apologize to people for what God has said. We preach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Or suppose, and this isn't particularly far-fetched because we're already seeing this happening, where laws continue to come out and movements continue to rise up that starts to force parents to, set, to accept the radical sexual agenda of humanists and secularists. I mean, it's already taken over our schools. Who would have thought 30 years ago we'd be flying flags on the flagpoles of our schools? Oh, we're not going to do the Lord's Prayer because we don't want to offend people of other faiths. But we're going to fly the ideological flag of the, of the radical left sexual agenda on the flagpoles of our school, and everyone's supposed to just be okay with that. And if you're not okay with it, you're a bigot. You're discriminatory. We're going to take you to court. We're going to hashtag the life out of you on social media. What do we say? Oh, I don't. I'm scared. I'm scared of being sued. Scared of losing my church. I'm scared of our, you know, church insurance company pulling our insurance because we're causing them risk. Is that what we're going to do? No. We're going to continue to stand up for righteousness. Suppose our worship services are suspended. There's an attempt to lock us down again. Like, well, the premier says we got to close our churches, so we're closing our churches down again. We're going to do that? Now, the first time we did it, you know why? Because nobody knew what was going on. And out of respect and deference for people that were in difficult positions that didn't have sufficient information, we're like, okay, we'll, we'll close her down. I mean, we, we were experiencing something that was unprecedented. But I think it's true. And this might bother some of you. You'll have to deal with that on your own. But if it wasn't for the media and it wasn't for the news, frankly, I wouldn't even know coronavirus existed. I don't know of anybody that's died. I've heard of a few people that are sick. I don't know anybody that's died. They might say, well, you're, you're not telling the truth. We had someone in our church accuse me of lying, that I knew of 20 COVID cases in our church. Are you kidding me? I got my hand in the Bible, folks. Don't accuse me of being a liar. I don't know of anybody that's died of COVID-19. But the media will tell you, mass deaths. It's like the Spanish flu. There's people dying all around us. The case numbers are going through the roof. And then you go outside and you're like, where? I don't see it. You know, I listened to some video testimony of some people that are probably dead by now, but they, they were older folks, 90 years old, and they'd lived through the Spanish flu back at the beginning of the last century. And they said as little children, they didn't know better. They went outside and, oh, there's a big pile of boxes down the street. And they'd run up and down these boxes and their mothers would come out horrified. Get off those boxes. Those are caskets. The horse carts would come through the streets 
and pick up dead bodies every morning. That's not what we're seeing. Now, could it have been what we've seen? Yeah. Could it go that way? Sure. We haven't seen it yet. Everybody's supposed to throw on masks. Get your mask on. And the numbers keep going up, 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 up. And it's our fault because we're not doing enough. Meanwhile, let's not talk about the people that are jumping off bridges or stringing themselves up in their garages because they've lost their businesses or jobs. Let's not talk about the children that are being raised by horrible parents who now have them 24-7 and are abusing them. Let's not talk about all the nut bars that are now full-time on the computer trying to seduce and lure children through various forms of sexual abuse. Let's not talk about people who have had to close down their businesses. Let's not talk about that. Let's not listen to the historians. Let's not listen to the clergymen. Let's not listen to the psychiatrists, the sociologists. Let's just listen exclusively to a paid technocrat whose sole interest is in physical health and just focus on that every single day, just inundate you with articles and tweets and information and fear over and over and over again, month after month after month. This is the world we live in. You know, I have a brother who's severely mentally disabled. Did you know that? And he was mentally disabled because when he was 15 years old, he was out driving with his friends. And the driver made a mistake, pulled in front of a transport truck, immediately killed the two boys and the one side of the car, gone. 14 and 15 years old. 14 and 16, I think. My brother was hit in the head so hard by the kid beside him that he's permanently brain damaged. Can't walk properly, will never marry. His one eye goes out. He can't use his right arm very well, his right leg. It was, it was a trying time. Two people were killed. One person's life was irreversibly changed. Now, I could say to you, do you love your neighbor? Shame on you for driving. Shame on you for ever getting in your car. Shame on you for ever using the public highways again. Do you love your neighbor? Shame on you for doing that. You're putting people's lives at risk. When you drove to church today, there was a potential you could have killed somebody. You could have got killed yourself. Shame on you. Love your neighbor. This is the rhetoric we hear in our culture and society. And it's all in response to this basic notion, well, whatever the government says, we should do. Folks, let me just share a few things with you. Life is about risk and reward. It's about risk and reward. The reason why we risk our lives in the highways is because there's reward attached to it. We actually run the numbers and say, the chances are I'm going to make it there. The chances are I'm going to be okay. The chances are we're going to get through this. We're not going to shutter all businesses and close down churches and leave people feeling desperate and isolated just in case. We understand this. But in this current circumstance, people seem to have forgotten it. And with regard to shutting down the churches, let me just say this to you. We're not a local charity. We're not a local business. The government has no authority over our church. The church of Jesus Christ predates Western culture by centuries. The government has no authority 
direct authority over our church, unless, of course, we're engaged in criminal behavior, like letting kids be abused or killing people or child sacrifices or something like that. And if the government comes to us and says, you know what, things are bad, things are tough, we need your help, well, then ask. Don't dictate, don't order, ask. We're reasonable people. Have a conversation with us and make your case. It's not my responsibility to prove to you that my church should be open for business. It's your responsibility to prove to me that if I open my church, people are going to die. High numbers of people are going to die. We also need, I think, at this point in history, a bit of a reminder in basic high school civics. If we understand how the government of our country is run, the government to whom we are subjects, it brings a lot of clarity to what's going on today. Our forebears understood that kingships don't work very well. You, you appoint a king and give him absolute control over everybody, unless he's a really, really nice guy, things aren't going to go well for the subjects after a while. So our forebears, going back to the 1200s, decided to put checks and balances on, on kings. Kings used to rule with absolute authority, but they don't today. We have three branches of government federally, and we have three branches of government provincially. We have an executive branch, which is composed of the prime minister and his cabinet, the premier and his cabinet, and they have a specific job to do. Separate from them, we have a legislature, a house of commons, where elected MPs or MPPs or MLAs come in and represent the individuals in their riding or constituency. And then we have a judiciary that when laws are passed, they judge when things are broken or when someone's been falsely accused. And these three branches of government have individual powers. Now, what's fascinating is historically, kings and queens, when they told you what to do, you had to do it. They could take your life. We have a queen. Her name is Queen Elizabeth II. A lot of Canadians are like, ah, who cares about the queen? Get rid of the queen. Actually, the role of the queen properly functioning is super awesome in our country. Because the role of the queen through the governor general or the lieutenant general is to actually ensure that the three branches of government remain operable. That's the role of the queen. The role of the queen is to make sure that our democracy remains stable and isn't abused and that those three branches of government function properly. That's not what's happening in our country. We've been told there's an emergency beyond all measure. We closed on our legislature. We shuttered our judiciary. We invested power in the executive. And then the executive said, well, we don't want to be politically liable for it, so we're going to default to the technocrats, the bureaucrats, the paid staff members. So this is why in our province in particular, you hear the same thing. And this, this is probably old news for some of you, and some of you have probably never thought about this. This is why whenever you hear a premier speak, it's always, well, this is what Dr. Williams says. This is what the chief medical officer says. This is what he says. Just a second, he's not an elected official. If I was him, I'd close the whole world down permanently. If my job was only about physical health, I wouldn't let you go anywhere. He has a limited job description. We respect his role. But let's hear from the pastors who are dealing with broken marriages and broken lives. Let's hear from the sociologists. Why are we not allowing the historians to speak? Why are we so afraid to fully open our judiciary? What are you afraid of? Get the legislature back open. 
Why not let our elected officials fully do their job? Why fire them as soon as they speak out? Toss them out of cabinet. This is what's going on, folks, in our own province. And yet we have people running around, Romans 13, Romans 13. We're not even under a properly functioning government right now. I didn't sign up for that. Another thing you should be aware of is how naive this arbitrary distinction is between essential and non-essential services. We see that. Well, you're essential, you're not. One of the things I just found so, so absurd under the lockdown, which a lot of Christians didn't want to say anything about. Oh, we got to keep LCBO open. But we're going to close down churches. We wouldn't want people who have substance addictions to go without. But, but we're okay letting marriages fall apart. We're, we're okay letting people get back into drug use, pornographic addiction, because they got nothing better to do and they're at home and they're not being paid. And this is the kind of messages we get from the government. Think of how absurd this is. Well, you don't have to work because we're going to pay you. If you can't earn enough money, we're going to give you the money. It's like, okay, just a second. Where does that money come from? It comes from us. The government doesn't have a money tree. Now, all of this might sound uber political to you, but the reason why I mention it is because what I'm increasingly understanding as I get older is all politics is actually theology. All politics is theology because it all flows from either a recognition of God's law, a twisting of God's law, a partial recognition of God's law, or obedience to God's law. So this notion that somehow we come to church and we just talk theology and then we go into the public sphere and do politics, that's a false dichotomy and we need to wake up. We could talk about motives. We could talk about the fact that we live in a culture that actually invites opposition. We have an official opposition on a provincial level, an official opposition on a federal level. Our governmental systems actually invite feedback and opposition and criticism. It is not unchristian to criticize the government. It's actually very Canadian and very patriotic to submit to the government while at the same time resisting and opposing the government. So when do I submit? What do I do with Romans 13? Well, we submit to all laws that do not violate God's moral and natural law. But I'm going to tell you, there's very few, there's very few laws these days that don't have some bearing on moral or natural law. Obviously, if we're called to serve the state, jury duty, perform a citizen's arrest, engage in just military action, serve as an elected official. These are all things that we should rightly do. If the government says this is an 80 zone, we don't want you doing 120, get your foot off the gas, slow down. We are to be good subjects, but we need to understand that authority is not absolute in any sphere of life apart from God. Secondly, all authority exists under God. Here's what it says. Or there is no authority except from God, what God has appointed. So that means that any authority that claims authority over God, look up here, over God, 
any authority that claims authority over God has actually claimed authority over that which is wicked. No authority can claim authority over God. Any leader that fails to recognize God, his ways, or his words will become corrupt. We often think of the passage in scripture that speaks of rendering to Caesar Caesar, that which is Caesar's. We always use that with regard to paying our taxes, right? And by the way, just so you know, I am a tax-paying citizen. I'm not a cash-into-the-table guy. pay my taxes. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But the, the passage is not really speaking about giving money to Caesar when he asks for it. The coin was making a claim about Caesar's authority. And Jesus is essentially saying to his audience, look, folks, if you're going to live in the system and benefit from the system, even marry the system, guess what? You need to obey the system. You don't have to marry the system. You don't have to live within the system. But if you're going to take, 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 and expect, expect, expect from the government, if you're going to get married to the government, if you're going to be unequally yoked at times to the government, then don't start crying when the government or people in positions of authority ask you to do things that are wrong. There are ways, by the way, of sort of extricating yourself from so much dependence upon the government. Now, human beings, it's interesting if you study history, love to be free, but when we get our freedom, we become lazy. And so we look to the government to bail us out, to provide for us. We're like, I want my freedom. I want my freedom. Okay, here's your freedom. Go take care of your own health. Go, go manage your own land. Go take care of your own roads. And on and on and on, right? Pay, pay your own wages. We're like, uh, but I only want to work 36 hours a week. But I, I, well, can't you help me? Government say, I'll help you. I'm going to tax you more. So they, they provide, they come up with genius ideas, public schools. We all were raised in those, at least most of us were. That was normal. But if you think about it, it's actually abnormal historically. We're raised in public schools. They take care of our health. There's nowhere in the Bible that says the government has to take care of your health, but they take care of your health. They build your roads. They provide policing and on and on and on. And we just expect it. Give me more, give me more, give me more. And what we do because of our laziness, we end up surrendering our freedom, the freedom that we wanted. We actually give it back to them. And they become our overlords and rulers. And then we're trapped. But I can't survive without government handouts. And it's a vicious circle where free people, because of laziness, return to slavery and find that it's not all that fun being there. So we need to remind ourselves if we serve civil authorities willfully and perhaps at times unnecessary, we might be prepared for a struggle. You know what would be a good idea for more Christians to start more of their own businesses? I'd love our church to be filled with entrepreneurs. Go out to work on your own. Those of you that are in high offices, get as high as you possibly can. If you're a university professor, go to the very top. Try to become the president. So you can now influence policy. If you're a police officer, become the chief of police. Don't be lazy. Go for it. Then you can influence policy. If you're an educator, as soon as you can, become the principal of a school and then a superintendent of education. It's high time for Christians to stop being afraid of the systems and take them back. 
Stop being so hitched to them or married to them or dependent upon them. All authority exists under God. Third, if you look at the text, it's very clear. If you look at verses three and four, that authority must meet the justice test. There's an assumption here that authority is going to act justly towards its citizenship. What these words do in the text, verses three to four, is they limit the authority of government to righteous acts of public service. Now, somebody might read this and say, oh, this means that God, God was okay with Hitler. Oh, he's in position of authority. What God puts in place, we can't, you know, we need to obey Hitler. He's telling us to kill Jews, so let's do it. Pol Pot, I know he murdered a lot of people, but, you know, God put him in a position of authorities. This is what we think. This is a ridiculous understanding of the text. It's as ridiculous as saying this to, a, to an abused woman, oh, you must submit to your husband. God's put him in position of authority. I know he smacks you around a lot and beats you up and locks you up in your room, but, you know, submit to authority. That would be absurd. And it's absurd too when government transgresses their sphere of authority. But again, we've given them so much because of our own laziness. Build our roads for us. Take care of our health. Build our schools. Give us building permits. You know, if you remove the toilet from your bathroom, take the two bolts off, unhook the water, you got to have a permit to do that. I'm just replacing my toilet, man. Where's your permit? Like we, we permit the life out of people. You got to have permits for everything. Permit for this and permit for that. You got to have a tag on your dog. You ever thought about why? Why do I have a tag on my dog? Well, someone said you got to have a tag in your dog. What if the dog runs away? Well, can't I create my own label for it for free? Like everything's hyper-regulated. You got to have a permit to do everything. And all these laws, it just gets worse and worse and worse, right? More laws, more laws, more bureaucracy, bigger government, bigger government. And we become slaves to it. It's not right. It's not the way God has designed government to function. So fortunately, uh, we have the opportunity to, in our system, to oppose government. It's actually a patriotic thing to do. We have an official opposition in the, in the provincial government and in the federal government. And if that wasn't true and the text was meant to be, we'll just obey, period, then how could we ever criticize communistic dictators or people that have put their subjects to death for no valid reason? In pastoral ministry, again, you wouldn't put up with it if I said to you, I'm your pastor, you're cutting my grass this afternoon. So, what? You think you are, buddy? See ya. There's spheres of authority that we live in. Passive people might think government support is helpful. There's always strings attached. As much as possible, do not receive handouts from the government. There's always strings attached. Always strings attached. As we think about the government, then we need to remind government officials that their fundamental purpose is to provide public justice and frankly, very little else. Basic public justice and very little else. So by way of application, a few things for you to take home. Number one, know this, the church does not exist by the authority of the state. I don't need to get permission from the premier to preach the word of God. The people of God don't need a legislature to vote to decide whether we can worship or not. We don't need that. There's nowhere in the word of God that says that. 
It's not biblically mandated for me to get permission from the king, the magistrate, in order to preach, evangelize, marry, bury, counsel. That's an absurd concept. Secondly, we submit in rightful spheres. Again, if we're criminally negligent, and there was, for instance, a virus that was literally people were dropping dead in the streets and mass numbers were dying. And we're like, ah, who cares? Whatever. Let's do whatever we want. I'm going to lick my finger and stick it in your mouth. I should be arrested. But that's not the circumstance we find ourselves in. And again, it's about risk and reward. Again, could someone in our church die of COVID? Yeah, they could. Could be me. If I die of COVID and you're like, I told you so. No, you didn't tell me anything. Because I made a choice. I know that life is about risk and reward. And I know those things are more important to me as much as every person is special and precious. There's things that are more important than someone dying a little earlier than they otherwise would have. There's lives on the line. There's an eternal message that needs to be sent out into the world. We've baptized 24 people in our church since the lo- we, we reopened. These are lives that are being transformed. I can't speak for God, but I wonder where we'd be at if we hadn't reopened. There's something precious and special about God's people meeting. And if you think, well, we can just do Zoom church. <laughs> what a joke. Zoom church, really? If we were into Zoom church, why would we ever have another sermon preached? I have, well, I have it written down here. What is this sermon? This is sermon number 1049. I label my sermons. This is 1049. I preached most of them at least twice. I have hundreds of sermons on the internet. And many other pastors do as well. If church is just about a message and some music, we might as well close all our churches down permanently because you literally have decades worth of material available to you online. There's something about God's people gathered where God manifests himself, where lives are stirred, all the one another's of scripture, the opportunity to commune together around the Lord's Supper. This is not just, ah, whatever. That's, I do that every week. I can go without it for six or eight months. Folks, if that's your view, you have a reduced understanding of what the church of Jesus Christ is here for and designed for. We are literally the presence of Christ on earth We are the body of Christ. Christ manifests his presence into the world through his gathered community. He really does. But unfortunately, we often think of the church as we're just a charity that happens to have it right. We're just another nonprofit. No, we're not. We're a business. No, we're not. We are the body of Christ on earth. And when when the church is absent, Jesus is largely absent. This is why we meet to gather and we scatter to witness to the world. Again, as a pastor, I I know, and I know many of you know, because you're heavily engaged in ministry, the toll that isolation takes on people. Maybe you're a very seasoned Christian and you're just very stable in your, your home. And yeah, you can maybe be away from church for three months or six months and it doesn't rattle your cage. So it doesn't really bother you if the church locks down. Or maybe you're a pensioner, you happen to be wealthy and it, you don't understand people that are upset about losing their businesses but put yourself in the shoes of the other 90%. For most people to be disconnected from the body of Christ for months or to have their business shut down is devastating. It's devastating to them. Folks, if I shut the church down, I don't get paid less. At least I don't think I would, elders. They never said, if you get that church back opened up, man, or we're not paying you. 
Like I could just say, hey, I'll preach online. No problem. Save a bit of gas money. Yeah, I got crummy internet in the county, but we'll live with it. What's the advantage for me to be here? Public drama? Don't like that. Public applause for every person that claps, three people try to take a swing at you. Because I believe in the mission of the church and I want to defend it at all costs. And third lesson, opposition is invited. The structure of our government invites it. So it's not unchristian to speak out. Now in all this, I think we need to bear in mind spiritual warfare because the devil's dividing churches and pastors and creating fear. But church, we know life is messy. And yeah, I probably have a, a little bit of perfectionism in me. By God's grace, I'm getting rid of it. I want to be strive for excellence, but not perfectionism. You can't manage everything in life. Life's messy. Folks, people die. And life goes on. And relationships fall apart. And we seek to bring healing. Life is messy. And we can't just hide and avoid. The way forward is for us to love God more than anything else. To love our neighbor. And to look for God to continue to bless and give us joyful discernment. I love what's said about the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It says, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times. They could read the culture in the times. And then it says, to know what Israel ought to do. Fortunately, God puts people in positions of authority that can help us to think through it. And it's not just me. I don't have all the answers, folks. I consult, I dialogue, trying to do my best, going to make some mistakes. But we do need to pray that God would give us wisdom and guidance to move forward for the cause of Christ. And maybe even if nothing comes of this whole COVID stuff and we get back to normal and everything's fine, let's learn whatever lessons God has for us when it comes to future challenges and future problems and future oppositions that might stand in the way of proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 